Hello, everybody. Welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga. It's Thursday, the 25th of March, and this is Acid Bunga Bunga. Um, today, we're talking about acid leftism. I'm not really sure what that is. Uh, George and Phil, who are in the UK, do you guys know what this is? Yeah, so the acid refers to hydrochloric acid because it's a leftism that will burn away <laughs> the problems of the past. Yeah, it's somehow, corrosive. It's somehow. burning. <laughs> Somehow knowing, knowing, knowing the British left a bit and, you know, knowing, <laughs> knowing the international left a bit, I somehow I get the feeling that's not the acid that is being referred to. Uh, no, I'm, I think it's probably LSD. Well, no, it is LSD. It comes from the work of the cultural theorist Mark Fisher. And I think the idea is how do you embrace um, irrationalism? How do you kind of move towards a, a collective um collective joy kind of spontaneous um collective i'm trying to think of the word basically like a rave you know that kind of energy and and forward movement and um that kind of experience so Mm. what do you do the day after Uh, that's what i want to know um well i i mean if if you're interested i think there's an there's an there's a parallel between um the kind of the high and the come down which which um mirrors the commodity logic in an in an interesting way because you have the domination in the in the period of the the come down or the (laughs) hangover of of um dead previous time dominating over over uh current time but i'm getting some Mm, interesting i didn't understand any of that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Phil, any insights? I mean, I, I remember acid Corbynism doing the rounds, you know, and uh, it just seemed like an attempt to aestheticize and create some sort of, you know, more utopian notion around Corbynism, which wasn't all that utopianism for all that it broke with uh, with neoliberal politics. Yeah, I'm not sure. Utopian, I mean, you know, I wasn't, um, I wasn't immersed in it or anything. It didn't seem to me so much utopian as much as um, defeated because it came right at the tail end of Corbynism, as far as I can recall, or at least that was the time that I kind of um, noted its emergence. So, yeah, I mean, it seemed to me kind of, um, you know, Corbyn, the way I read it at the time, at least Corbyn was on the brink of being defeated. Um, so, you know, let's all take LSD and uh, zone out. That was what I understood. <laughs> no, no, that's not right at all. The idea was that it was a hedonistic release um, and it's about, building lasting collectivities um inside outside of political parties um why acid then because you know you get you, you see things differently you, you and isn't isn't that connected to defeat like they're building things outside of the political party now that the project is defeated politically no it came before the defeat of corbynism um so okay. maybe it was a you know a premonition but i think it's more a callback in some ways to the 60s and to some of those kind of um ideas of of free love and and obviously lsd used uh, can be used in in psychoanalysis as well so understanding some of those those bases and, and to be very efficient and creative at your job um george was, um, micro, george was heavily involved in corbinism so he knows better so i defer to his better knowledge of corbinism uh yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't quite say that um, but yeah, you can, you can microdose, you can macrodose, you can mesodose. There's all different options. Of how you <laughs> let's, let's, let's go for some sensible mesodosing. Um, <laughs> when we speak to Mike Watson, who we're going to call up now, the author of two books, uh, which tread relatively similar terrain, uh, on these matters specifically. So let's call him up. 
All right. So we're joined now by theorist and creator Mike Watson, who is the author of Can the Left Learn to Meme, Adorno, Video Gaming and Stranger Things, which came out in 2019 on Zero Books, as well as The Meming of Mark Fisher. Uh, the, that's, that is the meaning, not the meaning, uh, the meaning of Mark Fisher, how the Frankfurt School foresaw capitalist realism and what to do about it, which is going to be coming out later this year. Uh, Mike already has a publication date. It's the 24th of September. If you want to set your calendars or look for it on pre-order, um, I assume it'll be uh, available on pre-order in a couple of months. All right. Hi, Mike. How's it going? Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, it's going well. Yeah. So, um, we uh, would like to start off by discussing, I guess, something which runs through both of the books, which is the relationship between art and politics. Um, so you write that uh, a politics that can act upon art's dreams is arguably the basis of the leftist modernist enterprise, but that now it seems that new generations have no need to explore for themselves the possibility offered by a politicized art on the one hand and an artified politics on the other. And so as a consequence of this, you, you kind of um, give the example of the Bernie and Corbyn campaigns as an example, which had a kind of centrist feel or maybe lacked a sense of, uh, well, I guess lacked a sense of utopia. Um, is that what you mean by that? Can you talk us through this? I guess being in Finland now, where I've been for a couple of years, I just kind of, I, I find it odd that the, the kind of most radical kind of thing that Corbyn and Bernie proposed, I think it was more their following than, than, than them themselves, is to be like the Nordic countries, because they're really conservative places. And I mean conservative really with a with a small C, but I guess it doesn't make a difference. They're just kind of, they're, they're socially conservative. They're not obviously like a neocon. They do have this social uh, democrat element, but they are basically neoliberal. I mean, they're social democrat, but it makes no odds because they do very neoliberal things all the time. The, the, the way they they kind of, uh, you know, choose their policy direction. And, and, and there have been neoliberal reforms happening since the 80s in, in Finland. So they're just like neoliberal countries with very strong welfare provisions. And I think actually, if anything, mm-hmm. what they demonstrate is that America and Britain could be could have these really strong welfare revisions and, and free education and whatnot without being at all socialist. Uh, and I don't know if that's something that we should like take comfort from or not, but it might be something worth pointing out to to the right wing. Yeah, and I guess you're, you're hearing this from Finland, um, where you live, but you're British. And I guess you're hearing this going, well, I mean, yes, yeah, sure, there's some things that are better here, but it's not utopian in the way that um, well, I think specifically Bernie in the U.S., where I mean, obviously the welfare system is much weaker there. Where the them talking about being like Denmark probably doesn't sound like such a <laughs> such a huge leap forward. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's not aspiring to to very much. But I suppose you know, I'm also thinking about the the, the lack of a counterculture. Um, and I think this is really what what Fisher was getting at with his unfinished book. Acid communism. So Mark Fisher was finished, was writing a book called Acid Communism uh, when he when he departed us, um, and that the introduction to that is in the Cape Punk Compendium from Repeater, and he talks about how we need like a kind of incendiary new countercultural movement on 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 par with the 60s, 70s, um, and with later kind of rave culture um, and traveller culture, etc. So, you know, I can kind of see that, that that's partly what's lacking, that if we want to kind of 
build a really kind of infused um, youth and, and I guess better because we're thinking about voters, a young adult movement, um, we need some kind of like music scene and, and underground scene and everything, everything that goes with that, uh, that makes a kind of cohesive uh, community, which can also kind of like carry with it a class consciousness. Um, mm. So I, I didn't see much of that because I was a little bit involved in the momentum campaign uh, from afar, from here in Finland in 2019. And I basically saw it as, as, as very conservative. It was really like a lot, a lot of stuff like, I don't know, I can't remember the names of these things, like hashtags, some, uh, they, were, they were hashtag campaigns aimed at getting people on Twitter to make sure videos explaining what the Tories, what the Tories had done to them, how they felt about Tory rule. There's a lot of stuff like, I've been waiting for three years for a cataract operation, you know, this kind of stuff, which doesn't really inspire. I mean, it's, you know, these kind of sub stories, which are very important. And I think they were right to try and get people to tell their stories. But, you know, if you compare that to the meme campaigns that supposedly got Trump into power, you know, there's this big gulf. And, and, and that's just where the mm. left can't really match the right for sarcasm and uh, so just kind of burning all our kind of taboos or yeah so so actually it's good that you mentioned that and obviously more specifically on acid leftism or acid communism we're going to come back to that towards the end but i'm glad you mentioned online content production or memes um because you also write that a that it could be a cultural activity that might create fissures in the system of capitalist objectification so can you talk us through that, um, and maybe especially for people who, you know, might in, if you in, maybe enjoy memes, but uh, you don't necessarily see um, any sort of radical content to them. So if you could talk us through that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, because memes are really annoying on the whole. So if you want to see what people <laughs> would kind of question how they can really change anything, because uh, they tend to just derail any sensible conversation. Um, but I mean, I, I've been actively engaging online since the since the 90s, so kind of the early wave, I'm kind of something of a, a, a um, what do you call this, a veteran, veteran of the internet. Um, and I remember that there were some, some really kind of silly on reflection hopes held for the internet, the fact that it allowed anyone to publish um, potentially, um, you know, the, the idea that that would by, by, by necessity lead to kind of a new era of democracy. So anyone can say anything that is democratic, therefore everyone's going to get together globally mm -hmm. and start communicating with each other. And then there's going to be this wave of, of good sentiment politically. And it didn't happen at all. Um, I think now we're forced to come about it in a kind of very Frankfurt school way. And I talk about the Frankfurt school a lot in, in both books, Adorno mostly in the, Kind of left learn to meme, but Adorno and Marcuse and Benjamin in the upcoming uh, memeing of Mark Fisher book. And the thing about Frankfurt School is that they really like to work with with the possible. They really like to come about things like, you know, in terms of what we what we what we're reduced to. And I think this is because they they dealt with World War II as exiled German Jews. Apart from Benjamin, who didn't actually get to the U.S. He 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 commit suicide as he was fleeing, trying to get there. Um, but, you know, I think that it's not so much, hey, what can memes offer us? But we're kind of like led into this position of, of really only having memes to rely on in, in many ways. Um, 
but then having said that, I think you know it's important to, to kind of bear two things in mind because on the one hand, we are kind of reduced to working within this kind of very kind of small internet space. Uh, because we can't really protest anymore outside in COVID, but we already couldn't really effectively protest. It just wasn't doing anything. So we were reduced to this online space. But at the same time, of course, the online space does give us a much greater freedom than we've ever had before. So we're dealing with like the best and worst at the same time, like the internet being in a way the best thing and the worst thing that has ever happened to us. So I think we have to bear that in mind. Um, so I have this kind of positivity for it, but also I see it as, as, as very uh, restrictive and not really like, you know, that, that we should be celebrating that we, we, we have this space because, you know, a lot of the time we really feel like we're only here because we don't really feel we're able to be elsewhere. Yeah, indeed. Um, I used to hate the, I used to love the internet and, and now I hate it. So um, I don't know, <laughs> maybe, maybe you can, maybe you can set me on the right path and, and find, and let me find what's, uh, you know, something useful about it again. So the, I mean, one of the kind of arguments that you make, I guess, in tangling with maybe the possibilities, but also limitations of memes, is that uh, obviously the circulation of memes is done in a really accelerated manner. Um, and they seem to go faster and faster, even just not even really talking about political memes, but just, you know, the kind of faddish fashion memes, not fat, not memes about fashion, but faddish memes. Um, and and the, the formats come and go with increasing frequency, I think now. Um, so you talk also about a, a slow meme movement, I guess, kind of taking up the idea of slow food movement um, and applying it to memes. Uh, what do you see as the possibility of, you know, of a decelerated meme culture? Well, yeah, the, the slow meme idea, uh, which actually I think, you know, it risks sounding very kind of boomerish. I, I don't know if that's a, that's a name that's going to catch off, but it's a name I do use um, I, I mention it in the upcoming book and it's something I've been talking about for a while and I think it's necessary. Uh, I just wonder if it, if it might need a rebranding. But a slow meme movement basically responds to the fact that we're forced to work at the pace of uh, data capitalism. So the internet in itself gives us like, this, these great tools for expressing ourselves. And I think we should really use them, at not just expressing ourselves, but also for researching. I mean, you can find basically anything you need. I mean, the, 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 the kind of the left canon, you know, of theory is there at your fingertips. Um, you know, so, so I think, I think there's, there's great potential, but the thing is we can't really tap into it because you're kind of forced to move on all the time. So you, you may have Das Kapital at your fingertips, but it's very difficult to like actually sit down and read it. And, and, you know, because I guess these data companies are trying to, get people to respond to as much data as possible, which means clicking as often as possible. We're kind of like, we're forced to put messages out there which are very quick as well, which can be kind of digested very quickly. So if you're making mm. YouTube videos, you have to make a lot of kind of very kind of grand was uh, or extremist statements all the time. So actually I think a lot of us have pushed into being Stalinist or you know much more left than we are. Um, or, you know, more, more extremist than we are. So I think, you know, we need to kind of slow down, basically. And that's what I mean by slow memes is, is make memes that are more reflective uh, in a kind of way that, you know, Adorno talks about art and Benjamin, um, both of them seeing in art a kind of way of, of reflecting, of 
maybe getting lost in in historical stimuli and aesthetic stimuli particularly and in being lost being shaken from the kind of false perceptions we have uh, which are imposed on us by by capitalism mm. so i think if we could, if we can make abstract memes memes which you can drift to then we'd be some way to kind of like challenging the speed which capital moves us at which basically makes it impossible to think coherently no, so I mean, I see what you're saying, Mike, absolutely about uh, sort of acceleration. And I think this applies much more broadly than just to memes, because what you've got uh, is with online spaces, an inability to even have debates, let alone real reflection, because everything's so accelerated. And I think most leftists actually are accelerationists, even if they're not accelerationists in the sense of wanting to accelerate capitalist contradictions or whatever, and might be much more, I don't know, I guess, social democratic, wanting to return to uh, the sort of golden age of the 1960s or whatever. Um, in regards to the internet, I think we all play along with and and play to the beat of the accelerated internet. So I buy that, but what I don't, I'm not entirely sure I, I get is how that relates to memes, because memes themselves are something which are pretty kind of disposable. I mean, the fun of it is precisely that they're trashy, um, often like on a lo-fi, they're made really quickly and they're disposed of just as quickly. So what would, yeah, I guess, how would it help us to have slower memes rather than instead maybe slower for forums for discussion, for example, rather than something like Twitter? Yeah, I mean, I suppose what you're describing and the, the way that memes are disposable um, and, and that we consume them very quickly is again a consequence of data capitalism and the speed it's trying to move us at. I don't know that a meme has to be consumed very quickly. If you think about what meme literally means, obviously, which comes from um, Richard Dawkins uh, in the 70s, he wrote this book called The Selfish Gene. And he talked about memes as a cultural unit comparable to, to genes. So basically ideas that spread um, ideas expressions songs and you know i think we can have stuff spread without that stuff having to be consumed very very quickly and of course you know there are 40 minute long left tube or bread tube videos and there are there is this tendency actually something that the the right wing poke fun at, fun at how much text is used in a left wing meme so sometimes you see this kind of these right wing memes like yeah. laughing because you know no one no one's going to read a meme that long, um, you know. But I think it's quite good to have these kind of quote memes that get people thinking, and actually you know they can be looked at quite quickly. But if you have a quote meme from Adorno or whoever, Marx, Jung, and you know, you might take a few seconds to read it. You might want to then reflect on it. There are there are memes that can lead you to reflect. Um, so I think there is hope there. Um, I suppose you're saying, is it not more a case that we need to use the internet um, as a means of maybe gathering together and discussing things, reading books and things, which also we do, obviously. I think you have reading some kind of reading um, group or something. Yeah, we have our we have our regular reading club. Yeah. Yeah, we have a reading group on the, on the Acid Left YouTube, which is a, a platform I run uh, with a guy called Adam Ray Atkins. We are, we're reading through Mark Fisher at the moment. Um, you know, so there are all these possibilities. Yeah, I, mean, I, I kind of agree that do we need what we're calling now memes or do we need more to, to slow down the internet so we can actually talk and read books and stuff? 
Um, but then on the other hand, you know, there's part of me which thinks is like this clinging, uh, you know, which I'm kind of doing now, clinging to books. Um, is it a bit like, you know, when the Gutenberg press came out saying, no, no, you know, this is no good. We need handwritten Bibles <laughs> only. Because, you know, is it not possible that, that you know, post-reading formats could lead to new types of knowledge which aren't in themselves negative? They might just be different. Maybe we need handwritten memes, just pass them around in the neighborhood. That's, <laughs> <laughs> That's one possibility, yeah. Um, I wanted yeah, actually specifically on, to, I wanted specifically to talk a bit about culture because um, you mentioned Benjamin in the book with respect to culture. You say, um, in the book, you say Benjamin, um, you know, pointed out the fact that culture for all, but without a change in material relations could be a disaster. And I wondered if that's maybe what we're seeing now. Um, that we are actually seeing a world in which culture is um, accessible, but without that under, underlying material change. And so we yeah, have a fully yeah. capitalist world that's overloaded with culture. Um, so, I mean, do we really need more culture then, even if it's a counterculture? I mean, isn't it perhaps, you know, the other, we've got to go in the other way? Um, I mean, Benjamin said that, Basically, in his essay, The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, which was published in 1935, he basically said that the right wing at the time, which was Mussolini and Hitler, or he was really thinking about, you know, Nazi Germany and, and, and Italian fascism, that they're basically trying to, to kind of sidetrack the masses because the masses, you know, you know were responding to... Uh, magazines, newspapers, radios, films, etc., and looking at all this stuff that they could suddenly see, which they couldn't have ever seen before, you know, like reprints of the Mona Lisa on postcards, posters, biscuit tins, reprints of other kind of paintings, but just like, you know, loads of kind of like portrayals of wealth, of stuff, that the, the, the masses wanted that stuff. They led them to, to crave power and wealth and, and that the right wing responded to that by saying you know we're going to give you foreign kind of uh, adventures you know kind of like um, invading africa or russia um laban's film living space um the, the they were the, they were basically responding to the pub, public hunger for 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 the stuff they were seeing all the time um and actually we do see that now we see you know obviously people have got more stuff in front of them than ever but also more potential to get that stuff and they actually have the platforms to achieve that so you can get an instagram and you can become insta famous or you can get a twitch youtube podcast etc um and you know it's, it's very much the case that that trump responded to this and johnson and uh, you know other right-wing populists by saying you know we're going to give you what you want we're going to give you power you want to leave the EU, you can have it you know, etc. You can build a wall. Um, this this is very much the same the, the same process. Um, the only thing is that, as I said, we do actually have the means to to get power through these platforms as well. So it's a bit like what Benjamin says. Basically, you know, the lowest common denominator. Although I'm not saying Benjamin is the lowest common de common denominator, but the basic media critique of the last century, which we're still using, which goes that, you know, the media is used by the ruling class to kind of maintain their power, um, is still true. 
and that where that's not true, the ruling class kind of like scapegoats people and, 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 and kind of leads their public into kind of hunger for war or dislike of China or whatever. This is all true, but where that's happening, there is definitely also an actual real means to obtain power and wealth, which is unrivaled. And actually, as a leftist, you can now, you know, set up Patreon, Twitch, etc. So, you know, there is definitely something else happening. And I think we need to realise that. Mm. That it would be silly to just keep going along with the basic argument of Benjamin Adorno, Sontag, etc., when there's something else happening. No, fair enough. I mean, it's maybe to turn, I guess, to sort of more sort of sociological observation about contemporary cynicism, because I think it's something, it's a theme that I guess recurs across both your books. Um, I mean, you've noted that there's a refusal to, to, to succumb to cynicism in the, in the production of memes, um, but there's a lot of cynicism in the memes too. And I think if we relate it to what was the traditional role of satire, which is to hold up um, you know, a fallen reality in contrast to the claimed ideals uh, of the powerful. Um, we're in a pretty different situation today. I mean, and, and not least because the powerful themselves don't really promulgate any ideals, um, you know, to which the reality over, you know, over which they're in charge of uh, doesn't match up to. So um, it seems like memes don't perform the role of, sat of satire, the role that it used to do, nor are they kind of heroic propaganda statements, but often just seem to reflect back contemporary cynicism, um, you know, about how, or maybe even, you know, just memes about like how depressed we are, about how fucked we are, ha, 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 ha. Um, it's a bit of gallows humor uh, drenched in irony rather than being potentially radical in the way that satire can be. Well, that's true, yeah. Um, you know, I suppose it's it's tricky. Yeah, I mean, you kind of said earlier that that you maybe were starting to dislike the internet, and and actually, I look at a lot of what's of what's coming out now, and I just I do get quite annoyed quite annoyed by it. Um, I do talk about that in in the upcoming book, uh, the meaning of Mark Fisher, uh, about how you know it just gets so hard to have a cogent thought uh, in front of the internet these days and, and you get the algorithm just throwing nonsense stuff at you like I was I was talking about how I don't even know how this functions still if it's something on my Android or something actually on Instagram but when you upload an Instagram story sometimes it randomly homes in on part of the picture you're uploading and suggests things like that, that you might want to buy but it nearly always gets it wrong um so you know it just it's so just what, what something it? else what and did it, it recommend it, that you it, it, that you it, that you bought? I'm just I'm just wondering if you uploaded a, something about Mark Fisher. Did it suggest some some fish? No, no. That, that, that's never happened because it doesn't tend to home in on words. It homes on on images. But what it was is it was um, that story about uh, Osama Osama bin Laden's niece supporting Trump. It was in the New York Post, but it was all over the internet after a while. It just it was a news story that looked like a meme. So I just thought this is funny. So I put it on. On my Insta, and it homed in because this picture of um, Bin Laden's niece, she's wearing a MAGA hat, a Make America Great Again hat, and it homed in on that, and it actually got it right. It picked, it pulled up a MAGA hat and said, "You might want to buy this." And I thought, "This is just ridiculous because the algorithm is supposed to know something about you, hmm. so surely it should know that I'm not going to want a MAGA hat." But then, I, then if you it think have, about what it could have recommended, a, a Kanye album. 
um, yeah. as a kind of intermediary step. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Um, but that would have been very kind of meme kind of like, because I suppose Kanye lends himself to memeing. But um, the thing is that the, the internet's not about giving you what you want. It's about making you click. So then I'm telling this story still now. So we're still talking about it. So somebody might be encouraged to buy a MAGA hat, but I don't know about that. But it's not even about getting them to buy a MAGA hat. It's just about clicking. So, you know, I must have clicked several times off that to then go and report that story to other people. Um, and that creates data. So, you know, often it's not really trying to do anything useful. It's just trying to annoy you. And I think that shit posting fits in with that. I mean, by shit posting, I mean just making annoying memes on purpose. Um, and you get like, you know, you get every form of shit post. So you're more, more often derailed in your thought process or your, your process of trying to relate something on the internet as a left winger by other left wingers. No, and often quite young ones who are trying to, often questioning your credentials because you're, you know, you're not extremist enough perhaps. But then when it's not that, you know, then it's something that you often, you know, you can, you can be called instead to extremists. So um, it, it is deeply annoying. But I think that in all that, there is this thing of people producing. There's definitely a lot of people who are making stuff in good faith. And even when it's just silly stuff like, you know, selfies, um, you know, from a certain demographic who are just going to post a lot of selfies on their Insta, um, that, I mean, that has some, there, there's some kind of reinforcement of your place in the world when you do that, I assume, of thinking through who you are, uh, maybe not, you know, in any philosophical terms. But, you know, Adorno, he has this famous line, uh, appears in a couple of essays, one in the 40s, one in the early 60s, that one can't make art after Auschwitz. Really, he said yeah. one can't make poetry after Auschwitz. Um, and when he says it in the essay on commitment in the early 60s, he later says that we have to continue to make art anyhow so that we don't surrender to cynicism. And I think that the thing is, millennials, well, at the time I was writing the book, I was really thinking about millennials. But as it turns out, a lot of them are now Zoomers because the dates have been changed. But, you know, millennials or Zoomers, younger millennials or Zoomers, um, they are in one respect Adornian, even though in many respects, you know, Adorno wouldn't like them. Um, they are Adornian because they just keep producing. So Adorno is very much like we're doomed, but we need to, like, make our in any case and then maybe some artworks will because because he thought that you know basically we're, we're, we're over controlled by, by by rationality and capitalism so some artworks in their abstraction and weirdness can break us out of this false rationality or rationality gone awry which is how we, you know we end up for dawn is how we end up with Auschwitz because rationality makes us kind of count everything everything kind of turns into a numerical count we end up treating people as wages um and then that's how you get uh, the the uh, the Holocaust because there was an economic element as well as a racial element in that. And also, of course, ra the racial element was itself a categorization of people. So Adorno says, well, if categorization is a problem, we need the opposite of that. And through abstract art, because when you're looking at abstract art, you don't know what you're looking at, you can get out of this categorization momentarily. Um, so he said, if you keep making art and the right kind of art, we might somehow break out of this false consciousness so, so i mean i just specifically on that i think you know there's a whole proliferation of political art i think art is often tries to be political make a social statement in fact so much of contemporary life seems to be 
over-politicized without, uh, while at the same time, the important stuff isn't being politicized. So would you follow along, I guess, then with Adorno's argument that we shouldn't be looking to make political art? Well, yeah, this is tricky because Adorno is talking at a time when the worst has already happened, uh, after World War II. And now I think we're trying to avoid, excuse me, we're trying to avoid that happening. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know because I think that that in itself is, there's something unfulfilling in that argument because actually, are, are we not, some way to being as bad as the world was in World War Two. I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, at least in his mind, you know, the very worst has happened. And in our minds, I don't think we've got to that level, you know, of the Holocaust. So we're trying to avoid that, you know, actually it could be naive, but, you know, we're saying, you know, Trump could have got that far and he didn't, you know. And so, so we're very much in a position of, of, of still fighting to avoid the worst, even if obviously we're really in a shitty situation, which isn't comparable to World War II. So I don't think we can go into degrees of are we as bad as that, but it remains that we still, we think we're trying to avoid that kind of worst case scenario. Um, therefore, I don't know if we should be getting into abs only abstraction can save us. I think there's still a case for, you know, placards and slogans and very simple statements to say, you know, this shouldn't be happening kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, listeners won't be surprised to know that I'm very skeptical of this idea that we're reliving Weimar Germany or anything like that. Um, and I kind of think that sort of catastrophism is um, somewhat complicit actually with, uh, with our immobility, but um, maybe, maybe we'll just park that. And if we want to come back to it later, we can. Um, because I wanted to turn to generations and you've already mentioned stuff about, you know, how, and we've already discussed the elements about what millennials are like, what zoomers are like. And a lot of these questions about internet culture are very closely tied to successive waves of, you know, cohorts of, of people. Um, and, uh, and a little uh, trailer for, for our listeners. We have something big coming up uh, exactly on generational politics. So that's something to keep your eyes out for uh, in the coming months. But uh, to turn to what's at hand, uh, you've kind of written about the uh, lack of enthusiasm or the, or the disappointment of, of Generation X, um, who were, in your terms, committed to following a spiritual revolutionary path. Um, and inevitably, they they sort of failed with that, and and like with many generations, end up uh, sticking with a conservative, or I guess following along with the conservative and materialist forces that shape society. So, firstly, I wanted to know how would you how do you distinguish spiritual revolutionary on the one hand, and this other dyad, conservative materialist, um, and and then I guess also talk us through what this sort of generational pathway is in which you lose the spiritual revolutionary spirit and, and move to the materialist conservative one. Yeah, I suppose I was talking about two, two extreme kind of tendencies, two, two different ends of, of, of reality. And one, one is a kind of unhindered personal and societal development. Uh, and that is the kind of the, the, the spiritual revolutionary path. And one is more towards preservation of what exists and slow progression via via what's possible materially. Um, so you have this kind of radical 
spiritual revolutionary path and you have this kind of conservative materialist path and i was looking at how this gets the one tends to be on a spiritualist revolutionary path when they're young or one used to be you know for the baby boomer generation and generation x um and and that gets lost at some point you end up having to kind of um jettison certain ideals and you end up on the kind of more conservative and materialist path but for me the path of millennial sorry for me the path of the millennial and the zuma is sped up so they don't really ever experience the spiritual revolution when they get straight into um the path of materialism and the possible except that nothing really is possible um so they just get kind of kind of put onto a a, a path of you know uh, the prosaic uh, but leading to nothing really, because all they're faced with is um, environmental meltdown. Um, so, I mean, I was really thinking about art school because I was trying to talk about how, uh, in that book, Kind of Left London Meme, how there used to be a kind of dream, um, you know, of revolutionary potential in society, of utopia, and that has now kind of been destroyed. But, you know, that process of it being destroyed can be seen very clearly in art schools, because when people go to art school, they tend to go to art school thinking like, I want to express myself, I want to be free. And that tends to get closed down very quickly. Um, and people get set on a path to employability and how you get a gallerist and stuff like this. So anybody who's still speaking about Van Gogh and uh, self-expression by the third year of their BA, probably will get a you know a pretty poor grade. Um, do, do you think? Do you think this is there's a generational difference in this um, kind of approach to art education um, or not? Because I think some of the maybe some of the discourse or some of the understanding is that it's you know it's millennials more recently or the expansion of higher education from the at least in the British context from the nineties onwards. It's it's relatively recently that you, uh, as an art school uh, graduate, have to think in much more instrumental terms. You can't live in a squat in Brixton and and go on the dole and, and create art uh, in in that context. Instead, you have to be an, an operator um, <clears throat> from the first uh, seminar that you go to in art school. Yeah, I, I think it's been changing since the late 90s. My first degree was actually in art with, with a theory element. Um, and it was definitely changing then. There were like these modules like artists and the law and some, I remember some other module, which was kind of a bit businessy. But, but there's a lot more of that stuff happening now. But it was coming in then. It seemed to be coincident with the introduction of tuition fees, naturally. So people want something for their money. You know, they want to then be employed um employable rather um but yeah i mean it changed it was changing then and i'm on the cusp of gen x millennial hence my kind of obsession with this stuff um it was changing then and it, it's 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 really sped up since so I've, I've taught on a few um fine art masters as visiting lecturer and 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 really seen you know the degree to which is this has changed and, and everyone is just writes on these masters just like what contacts can i make um, what contacts can i make how am i going to get a gallery what am i going to do for my final show so, so on that on that point about um 
I suppose, uh, historical contexts. Um, there's a quote I wanted to um, to read out because I, I thought it was very interesting um, and also to push you a bit on it. So you say, conservatives tend to misread the historical situation and to argue that a perceived decadence in today's society arose from the disdain for authority of the baby boomer generation. But it is arguably a tendency towards too much control that we need to be wary of and not its opposite. But I wonder if that's not the wrong way around, because um, um, isn't it the problem that we're objects of control rather than subjects of it? I'm trying to just like um, understand that question because I read it earlier because you sent it to me. But when, when you say objects rather than subjects, what, what's the distinction for you? Well, that we are manipulated, subject to forces we can't control. Um, that rather than controlling our environment, we're controlled by others um, and by the environment itself. So isn't it, I mean, I suppose the issue is, don't we need more control? Um, I suppose that, you know, I'm going along with Adorno still that, that something's gone wrong because we're trying to control basically nature. As humans, we're scared of nature rightfully because nature is going to kill us you know anyway uh, each individually uh, that's 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 unavoidable um so we fear that so we try and find ways to control it and we did this through magic ritual and religion myth before religion and, and then and then we got into science and, and capitalism um and adorno says that you know, this is never really solving anything because the, the kind of control of nature gets displaced into the capitalist system itself to so end up controlling ourselves through capitalism. And then people like Jordan Peterson come along and Steve Bannon, uh, who both kind of say that, you know, the, the, uh, the, the millennial was lost, was, did say the millennial was lost um, because there's, there's, no, there's, there's no control. They, they, they don't have... Um, a grounding in myth or Christianity, and Peterson very much tries to kind of like bring bring these things back. Yeah, in his books, um, and I would argue it's it's not that it's not a lack of control. That's what I was really arguing against. It, it really, in, in the sense that Peterson and Bannon were arguing um, that you're not going to like do anything. You're not going to solve this. The problem isn't that that millennials are lack control. It's, it, it, it's that they're too controlled. The world is too controlled. But I suppose it's a control that um, is chaotic, that it's, it's not actually producing any kind of rationality. And this, this is the issue mm. about rationality, is that rationality isn't rational. We've never been rational. Not that we don't want rationality. Um, it's just that uh, this kind of tendency to control leads leads just to a big mess that is kind of, you know, not at all fulfilling on its in its own terms, or not, is, not the way uh, it ends. Sorry, I, I might have missed something. In I mean, it, is is that is that the, um, your argument or or Adorno's, or or maybe it is is it is the same? But that seems to me to throw the baby out with the bathwater to a certain extent because you know that's the um, <clears throat> the idea of control is right at the center of any you know of any Marxist project to the extent that there is a an ability to increasingly control nature. And you have increasing domination of nature, decreasing domination of man by man, all, all that sort of thing. So, I mean, is is it a? I think it seems today that if we throw away the idea of particularly democratic control, then we put ourselves in a 
quite a difficult position politically because that seems the the felt loss of popular sovereignty seems to be the form in which revolts against neoliberalism um, are taking at the moment. The hang on that last bit. The, the sorry, that was it. It was a bit off the off the off the cuff there, but yeah, I guess the idea is like control. Control is a socialist idea. We should defend it. We should extend it. Um, we shouldn't be scared of it. Essentially, it's well, not I, a, I, it's not inherently um, authoritarian idea that we want collectively to control the direction of society. And actually, technologically, we can do that. We can have a planned economy, or even better than that, a democratic economy yeah um I, I don't know that adorno was going all out for chaos and then you are you ask if it's adorno or me i find it hard to tell now but that's not because i think that, that I mean, you know i have anything to say is interesting than what adorno says but just because i have been writing on him uh so long um because i did my one of my kind of dissertations and, and theses were on adorno um, and then I've done a couple of written a couple of books on him, um, but I mean there's definitely differences. I mean I find him way over conservative in many respects. But I mean I would say that the thing is, Enlightenment has never really fulfilled its objectives. It's, it's really supposed to be about questioning, not answering. And I think we questioned a little bit, and then kind of got scared of questioning or of what we might find. Um, I think that the Enlightenment, the, 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 the way the Enlightenment led to um, basically to socialism and communism, um, I mean, that's great and everything, but you end up with something that is basically mess messianic. No, I mean, the kind of, the, you know, the, the idea of utopia and a utopia that will arrive at a certain point in the future. We don't know exactly when. This is very much like the heaven which will arrive, but you can't ask when the second coming is going to happen, etc. Right. Um, it's a kind of it's a system that has an inbuilt delaying mechanism, um, which is very good for controlling the masses. So I don't know that I'm agreed that that that, that all is good with uh, with enlightenment and enlightenment um, politics. Um, I think that we're fundamentally kind of blighted so long as we proceed by trying to identify and control things outside us so as individual subjects you know trying to to fence in and control the natural object uh, and each other as long as that's our principal aim we're always going to be consigned to um having control and excessive control inbuilt into our political systems and belief systems um and and that means we are basically doomed i don't see any way out of that um but you know as, as philosophers and thinkers shouldn't we be trying to aim for the best we can get not what we think we're destined to do um so adorno is kind of saying that you know if we proceed by what he calls identity thinking um which is the tendency to identify and control things and give them measurements and values if that's our, if that's our problem, we need to do what he would call non-identity thinking. Um, and that's where abstraction would come in. Because if you think about a piece of classical music, as he would say, um, or an abstract painting, when you're listening to it, or it could be trance music as well, equally, or Pink Floyd or whatever does it for you. But when you're listening 
there's a certain point in which you kind of feel a bit floaty. You're no longer thinking uh, in terms of, of uh, you know, you're no longer thinking about, you know, doing the washing up late or whatever, going to work the next day, and you're not really feeling your bodily boundaries anymore. Yeah. So in this point, you're no longer thinking about subjects and objects. You're no longer dividing yourself from the rest of the world. So the dawn says is exemplary of how how maybe we could think in this non-identity way, mm. um, but it's only exemplary. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, I mean, that philosophically, like I probably, <laughs> philosophically, I probably think mean, that's the next question. That, that is kind of deeply unfulfilling. But then, I mean, you know, you know where he got in trouble with his students or rather his students revolted in uh, 1969 in Germany, in Frankfurt, and they actually occupied the university and he wouldn't support his students and he called the police on them. But the thing is, he basically said that there is a, you know, whilst I would like this to work, there's a dram, there's a dram of madness or modicum of madness in the student movement, which could tip over into totalitarianism. He literally wrote this to Herbert Marcuse as they were disagreeing about this. Marcuse was in America. Um, and... Um, yeah, you said red you know, his, thing, his thing is that we will always end up back in totalitarianism, so long as we don't change the way we think. Yeah, I mean, I think I might have a philosophical disagreement that insofar as I think we can, you know, try to get beyond capitalist quantification and rationalization without trying to kind of relinquish the idea of of, uh, subjects trying to control objects. But um, I think maybe we should take this plane discussion onto more political plane, because maybe we can uh, try to try to get to a point where we can understand each other um, a little bit more directly on, on, on the train of politics. So, Phil, over to you. Yeah, I mean, there was a lead in there. You make the case for acid leftism. And can you tell our listeners what it is? Okay, so yeah, acid communism is the term that Mark Fisher came up with, as I, as I said earlier. And uh, it's very much based on the Frankfurt School. Actually, he does mention both Marcuse and Adorno in the introduction to the book, He Never Finished. And actually, that's kind of, he mentions that and then he doesn't get much further because it's just an introduction but he does talk about how for him acid communism would be a kind of uh, a mass movement that led through music through concerts through discussions through seminar groups to a kind of uh consciousness raising and he meant primarily a raising of class consciousness um and i really look at it in a similar way um and i have this platform called the acid left which i run with adam ray atkins and i mentioned the acid left in the upcoming book um i mean i can't know what fisher was really going to get to but for me i say acid left because i think if you say communism then you bring in a whole lot, a lot of baggage i mean in finland this is kind of problematic a bit the word communism and in much of eastern europe so um, I know that people can get really angry at me for not wanting to use the word communism too much, but I do fundamentally aim towards the same ends. But I decided to call our platform the acid left. So anyway, that's, acid leftism for me is a kind of using of culture, of art, of memes to uh, disrupt and to create, like, like Fisher said, to create a kind of uh, an awareness of social class, etc. But also I'm just very interested in, in, in kind of dispelling this idea that culture runs downstream from politics, therefore is secondary, because I think they're, they're just entwined. This is a false uh, dichotomy. 
Right. So in, in terms of the, the acid bit, um, what does that what does that add? Is is it a kind of <clears throat> uh, kind of leftism plus rave or is that too much of a simplification? What, what is the I guess the, the question is how how is that term adding to to the kind of political project? Well, I think, you know, yeah, OK, it's kind of a, a politics plus. Uh, you said rave. Um, yeah, I suppose kind of like, you know, incendiary cultural moments, things that make you move and, you know, get kind of somehow infused in ways that academic dialogue doesn't so much. So I think we have to bear in mind that a great deal of human existence just isn't reducible to academic discourse and we often lose a lot of people when we only deal with with academic discourse um so there is a case to to take leftist dialogue into nightclubs and festivals and, and of course you know music's a great way for expressing uh, revolutionary kind of sentiment um so i think you know it's partly as simple as that, that, you know, these are ways of communicating and getting people on board that go beyond dry dialogue that, you know, a lot, a lot right. of academic dialogue would appear to be a great way of maintaining stasis rather than, than making revolution happen. And well, I think actually, you know, just to want yeah, to say yeah. one last thing okay. is that, um, uh, that nightclubs, pubs, etc., were, I don't know if this will ever happen after you know, lockdown ends, because I think that this is inconvenient for the establishment, but were a kind of place of tuition for many people. You know, you go to pubs, you talk, you learn. Even if you're a student at university, you often did more learning in the student union bar or pub afterwards, you know. Yeah, absolutely. But So I guess um, the question, a couple of questions here, one uh, or a point before, before a question, the point about academic discourse being dry and appealing to nobody, um, maybe Phil has his own thoughts on that as our resident academician. But um, the way that you described it, I guess that kind of freewheeling or kind of, I don't know, different ways of communicating um, political messages makes me think of the Capitol Hill riots. And is there maybe uh, a kind of way to, to read it where you have like an acid rightism which is currently a bit more energetic, a bit, you know, the, 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 the QAnon shaman gets um, talked about a lot, but maybe for good reason, because it's quite a compelling image and the carnivalesque in, in that um, event obviously is quite compelling to a lot of people. So I guess the question, I should probably put a question to you rather than just rambling, is, is, is it, uh, are we in a situation where acid rightism is, is stronger than acid leftism? Well, yeah, I think that's, that's something that I uh, allude to in the next book. And I have said before, um, I mean, in, um, in other discussions, um, but yeah, certainly, yeah, there, is, there, there does seem to be a kind of acid rightism. There, there is um, a, a kind of element of the bazaar in, in uh, QAnon and in that uh, capital uh, protest and storming uh, of the capital um yeah. i mean the thing is i would say that when the right do it it's deeply cynical and a bit sadistic because if you look at you know how people reacted to the images coming from the capital 
uh, it was one of fear because it was quite scary seeing these kind of this kind of carnivalesque, but kind of like something from a Batman film, you know, um, this kind of a joke, jokeification, you mean dark protest. Yeah. So what was that? What? Sorry, joke, jokeification. Yeah, yeah, that would be a good one. Uh, but I'm not so much thinking about the joke, but more than Batman, uh, was it Batman Returns, the one with Michelle Pfeiffer and the Penguin, which, who was it, Danny DeVito? Um, yeah, that's just, that's old school Batman, not the Christopher they, Nolan. Yeah, um, yeah, they had they had this whole kind of like, um, yeah, kind of dark macabre uh, pantomime around the uh, politician who uh, the Penguin, I think, was being a politician or something at a point, and then and they, he had these kind of people who were kind of like pirouette on these kind of dark figures that would would, would do this kind of carnivalesque stuff and it was all kind of scary and of course that idea of like uh i suppose it's based on um on nazi parades of like uh parades that have entertainment value but are also kind of uh macabre uh you know that that is kind of disturbing and and i did see that um with the capital rights and just the whole thing of people going in there but then like playing with their mobile phones and and like i mean isn't that isn't that exactly it, that they were kind of, they might've been scary and there's certainly people there with things like Auschwitz t-shirts. So, you know, there's no, there's no um, yeah, yeah. fucking around with that. But at the same time, they were also completely useless. I mean, it wasn't any attempt to seize power. It was actually a very postmodern demonstration, carnivalesque and pretty useless in a way that a lot of left-wing protests has been over the past decades, where it's there to express yourself, to say what you want to say, to show yourself, to meet people. And then it all dissolves the next day and it becomes and it what's left is has been really just a media performance and so yeah, I was, I suppose, you know yeah, like if like they were scary maybe you know the left should be properly scary should be more scary more threatening well the, the thing is it's kind of like an amoralism at the least maybe an immoralism for its own sake with with no end in sight or even uh, ability to manifest power i suppose that is kind of scary you know I mean, if that if that was rolled out on a large scale, then what would society become? Um, the left, I think, you know, is a bit hamstrung by the fact that it would have to actually do something with a spectacle of that sort. It would have to be seen to manifest some kind of positive ethical message. This is what traps us a bit. The, the, the right can, has this kind of acid moment because it's not supposed to make any sense or... Yeah is not supposed to say anything that has any kind of ethical sense, whereas the left needs to kind of be seen to be good. And that's really problematic. We're really having problems weaving a narrative, but also weaving any nonsense. So we're kind of just stuck. I don't know what we're supposed to do, except that the one, the one narrative that is kind of presents itself to us most obviously, like we're going to like start a revolution, which is going to make everybody equal. You know, the, you know, and if you if you take part in that, we'll be the greatest nation in the world because we would have started the world by revolution that made everyone equal. That one narrative is the bloody leftist narrative, but we can't seem to use it or deploy it. Hmm. That's right. I I want to ask you one last question um, about acid leftism, because, and and this is a tricky one really, but if the left adopts this sort of I guess irrationalism as a way of um, fighting back against capitalist rationalization, is it the risk that it's recuperated by capital and it's sold back to us in the same way that the counterculture was? You know, the counterculture and ended up 
being complicit with the re-legitimization of capitalism, especially after the 1970s crisis. Um, so isn't there a risk that acid leftism also becomes recuperated in a different way that maybe capitalism goes, oh, you want a rationalism? We'll, we'll give you a rationalism, you know, um, and that doesn't look yeah. too pretty. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're, we're a long way from worrying. I don't know. Well, you know, I really hope the acid left takes off. I think there's a possibility it could take off because people are going to want to do stuff when they're finally allowed to kind of gather again. And there is this kind of space maybe for a kind of Marcusean great refusal because Herbert Marcuse proposed some kind of like, I don't know if you could say it was acid communist, but actually I suppose it's more the case that Fisher was basing his acid communism partly on Marcuse's um, kind of um, idea of a protest. It would incorporate um, both working class people and identitarian issues as we would now call them and which would tie in with the hippie movement or really the hippie movement kind of just happened whilst that book was being published uh, in which he talks about this uh, one-dimensional man in the late 60s um anyway he, he very much suggested this kind of like uh, a mass movement with countercultural aspects I, I i think that we're looking at something like that possibly happening again when lockdown ends if there aren't just so many new draconian laws to stop people even trying that um, if there aren't, then I think we could have some kind of takeoff of an acid left movement. Um, and would it be co-opted? Uh, I'd love it just to be big enough for them to try to co-opt it. That would be fantastic. <laughs> and then All right. co-opted? Well, of course it would. <laughs> we, have to, we have to try something. All right. Very good. Uh, we should leave it there. And let's hope that there is a, some big eruption after, uh, after lockdown is over uh, when, it, uh, when it finally, finally ends. All right, Mike Watson, thank you very much for joining us today. All right. So it's just the three of us now, uh, Alex, George and Phil, having a little chat after our discussion with Mike Watson. Uh, and we thought we would take some of the material that was uh, discussed with Mike Watson on the counterculture and discuss or put ourselves a question. What would be truly countercultural today? Because it's something that we haven't really discussed and it's an intriguing sort of question. Um, a counterculture, obviously, is something that has a theme of conflict with the values of society as a whole. Um, and when we think of counterculture, we always think of the counterculture of the 1960s, certain values like social permissiveness, uh, changing attitudes to race and sex and gender, also being critical of militarism, of bureaucracy in favor of liberation, um, and also being post-materialist. Um, but that's not the only counterculture that's there, that there's ever been. Um, we think of specifically the global 1960s, but there's other countercultures, uh, the late 19th century Bohemians, different countercultures in radically different social contexts. Um, so the question is, uh, what would a counterculture look like today? And we want to be really open about this uh, and think widely about what would really go counter to the predominant values of our culture. Um, so short back and sides, wearing <laughs> little bow ties. Um, very, that's no, that's normcore. Very yeah. strong focus on monogamy. Um, that's trad. Married, getting married early. Um Okay, George, you can you can respond. Well, to I think it, George is uh, satirical. Yeah, George is like taking the piss. Actually, does highlight something that a lot of that anything that is countercultural is already kind of subcultural, subcultural, and inscribed as a little almost meme based 
figure who exists on on the internet and therefore isn't countercultural. No, I mean, I think the point is like the you can't. Um, it speaks to the splintering of um, deeply kind of. I mean, pluralistic would be the polite way to describe um, late capitalist societies, but fragmented and splintered, and very difficult in which to produce anything which is a meaningful consensus that doesn't automatically become a camp subculture. Like George says, yeah. you know, the things that I describe become kind of trad trad wife um or trad culture um or you know like um norm core actually I, I would i would be in favor of rejecting culture entirely and maybe that is yeah. uh you know but i think no phil your point yeah. for your gun. no so so my my point on this would be to return to the question that there is no counterculture there's no possibility of counterculture already we see in the dominant cultural forms <clears throat> a kind of manufactured dissent this like somebody who's who's nominally on the outside just who is is critiquing um culture on its own terms um and that's because the fundamental consensus on all important matters is so strong and so widespread that the only possibilities of counterculture which requires a genuine antagonism of some sort are in some like really um not popular and niche artworks and maybe some literature maybe some uh some music but they don't aspire to have a, a cultural um f- frame or cultural or movement yeah. or identity yeah. it's just very small individual works of antagonism which are often reactionary i mean even jihadis right you know like i mean um supposedly kind of subscribing to traditional muslim islamist culture i mean even they're um you know they're basically just hipsters who've gone off the rails um so there was like that old tumblr back in the day where it was called hipster or jihadi and you had to identify um you had to identify which one was a hipster which one was a jihadi because they both you know they both subscribed to the beard culture (laughs) and then and the the reveal was that they were all jihadis (laughs) no the reveal you could usually tell it because there was usually like a row of bottles in the bar behind the hipster and obviously that didn't usually happen with the jihadi so but that's yeah. so. If you're a sober hipster, you're a jihadi. Essentially, yeah. So straight. Um, in, what is in, it called? The straight core. What is it? Is straight, it straight edge. Core? Yeah, straight uh, edge. So straight edge hipsters are jihadis, basically. Yeah. Um, more, more seriously, though, I think the the points you both have made it are completely correct. That there's no, there's not really much of a mainstream culture that seems to have collapsed. Everyone sees themselves as an outsider or tries to be edgy. Um, like even you know corporate elites want to be different. You can think of Silicon Valley wanting to make the world a better place. So they've all kind of absorbed a form form of the 1960s counterculture, which has been absorbed into the mainstream, albeit in perverted form. Um, So everyone wants to be different. I guess maybe what would be counterculture- It's maybe not perverted even. Well, maybe, maybe not. I mean, mean, that's the point. It's the consummation of the 1960s. It's It's not a derogation from its ethos. It is the consummation. The anti-authoritarianism is um, the relativism and the pluralism of the market in which there is no actual kind of authoritative choice ever made. It's only ever a consumer choice. I think yeah. it's a good thing that there's no um, counterculture, actually. I think I'm, I've always been quite skeptical of the value of cultural revolt, cultural rebellion. Um, like it's not, it doesn't have any political meaning the like rave is not political I, I know that some listeners and i'm thinking of one in particular or one or two will disagree with me um 
on this, but it's escapist, hedonistic, individualistic. It's not political. It's an it's anti political. Well, I guess it's maybe not this is the. It's no, not on, political precisely because of our conditions in which escapism, hedonism are sold back to us. So in maybe in a different context, they might be countercultural and they might be even have a, some political slant to it. But um, but today they certainly aren't. And I think it's also important. It's worth saying also that countercultural countercultures don't necessarily need to be political. I mean, they haven't always been political in some ways. Maybe a rejection of politics could be countercultural in, in certain contexts. No, that's that's true. I guess the. The thing that I'm implicitly responding to is is um, people sort of celebrating these temporary destruction of hierarchies and these alternative spaces for collective, um, like radical collectivity, which are somehow incipiently or actually anti-capitalist. And it's no, you're just going to rave. And that's good in and of itself, but it's not, it doesn't have any political um, it's not going to lead to anything. It's going to lead to Occupy at best, which obviously achieved zero less than nothing well, actually but that's an, an important point maybe what would be countercultural would be a rejection of the um the the insistence that everything needs to be political or make a point or be ethical or it somehow have a social purpose beyond itself doing something purely for its own reasons not within without any concern or care for what the world thinks about it um or without having tried to say that you have any social purpose basically not be instrumental in any way and just do your own the way, thing the way you live your life be. alex basically <laughs> yeah. yeah but unfortunately not not so pure so you're so you're saying that the personal isn't political would be a well, countercultural that, idea because it's yeah. just like it's just personal it's just like what you want to do on on your weekend and there's there is no political yeah maybe um, there is maybe maybe that would actually be countercultural is carving out a space of autonomy that isn't kind of um saturated with um ethical and humanitarian meaning and um you know that nobody cares about your personal pronouns um or you know what kind of branded goods you buy or whether or not they're fair trade or um what newspaper you read or that kind of stuff yeah, and that it's not performative, that it's not yeah. trying to... But then the, the point we're saying is that it would the, become performative. <laughs> the, anti, the anti-performativity is the Becomes performance. a performance, exactly. Oh, culture is full oh. of contradictions, <laughs> isn't it? No, but, but this would be... Why this, politics is better than culture. Yeah, so I mean, would this be the conclusion then, that there's no possible counterculture today because culture has become so... Um, I guess subsumed by capitalism that there isn't anything which could be in any way sort of outside or, or counter to when the predominant way things outside? are. And we're all locked in our little, you know, we're all like become kind of, um, we've all become online hustlers, cam boys and cam girls, you know, like it's meaningless to even talk about um, that kind of commonality when the connectivity we enjoy is all essentially um, online at the moment or for many of us anyway. Yeah. There's no culture. There's no counterculture because there's no culture because there's no society. That's that's basically what you're what you're saying, Phil. Pretty much. But, <laughs> well, but that's, might, that, but that's just right. a, that's that's something very specific of now of, of the pandemic and where we are. But I mean, more broadly, I'm not. I, I I more broadly actually do think that perhaps being against the internet as a whole might be pretty countercultural today. Um, that would be an attitude which um, you know rejecting all forms of. Off kind the of grid. The, 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 the grid. Yeah. The Ted Kaczynski counterculture. Mm. 
but yeah. God, the the but no, but the counterculture, the Ted Kaczynski count, you know, the off the grid is the original 1960s counterculture. That's the point. Living off the grid. Sure, but that's one that has not been incorporated by capitalism. It's something which would still be, I think, probably quite radical. You and would it, and would tie in and would tie into the idea of anti-instrumentalism because when you do something online, you are doing it always. You know, even if you want to do it for genuine connectivity. Uh, there's always an element of performativity of wanting to win at the internet of trying to get more likes or more follows or whatever. Um, where rejecting being even on the internet, why, you've made the case for why counterculture is undesirable. Because who the head, who the hell wants to be Ted Kaczynski? I mean, it doesn't mean to be individualist in that way. I mean, it could be, it could be collectivist. Even but in- worse, a commune of Ted Kaczynski's is even worse. <laughs> Make it, yeah, make a whole a whole uh, group of them. Um, but yeah, so I think just to return to this idea of like acid leftism, acid Corbynism, um, there's a there's a question here as to whether this is going to be what comes next. If the you know the the Anglo left or the left more widely is going to seek a kind of countercultural um, route, I I would be interested to hear what the two of you think about this because we've kind of been saying oh it's not a good idea but basically will it happen anyway uh, i don't entirely buy it i i think that everything is so as we've discussed already so parceled out into little identities already almost before anything is born so it already becomes a, like an internet subculture um which you know hyper accelerated exists one day and is gone the next day any attempt to do that i think would f- immediately fall into that logic and so even if someone tries to do that, I don't think it has much legs in it. I don't think that it had, would have much credibility as a kind of broader-based counterculture, which is tied into left-wing politics. I, I, I struggle to see what that would actually look like. Yeah, maybe. I guess the <clears throat> there is a there is a a space for it if you think that the kind of left projects in the US, in the UK, elsewhere have, have failed? Like, what do you do after that? Do you go into the um, NGO world? Do you go into um, culture? I think the, um, well, I mean, I think it's most likely that they will turn to um, cultural and expressive forms. The people who've endured the defeat of um, the left over the last few years, particularly in the US and the UK, but I'm sure elsewhere too. Yeah, I, I mean, I personally don't see it because I don't, the, the cultural stuff is so mainstream. I mean, the, the, the left's culture is not in any way radically separate from um, mainstream culture, albeit it might reject certain aspects of the market, but it still largely participates in it and so on. So I don't really, I don't really see the basis for an emerging left subculture today. Um, and I'm, and I also personally wouldn't advocate it. As we've said, I, I think it's most likely a dead end. Um, but in any case, if the left did try to do it, it wouldn't be particularly countercultural. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good point because some of the um, more cultural aspects of recent sort of, you would say, the kind of the hyper liberal. Um, wing of the left, if there is more to the left than that, um, than, than that wing at least, those have become increasingly mainstream. Like, look at the last year. Um, it really does show that cult, like the culture of, of the US, of the UK has been, and in your damage article, as you said, Alex, the kind of Americanization of, of the world, um, there's, you know, there are certain like 
you would say quote unquote left aspects to to contemporary culture who could have thought several years ago that being an anti-racist like organization would be um one of the strategic goals of like of of many large national or international um businesses and ngos and things like this it's like you know there has been a real cultural shift i guess in that sense and it's been one that the left may well have um started if not certainly embraced as it was developing yeah and i think the right wing opposition to that which is to say hey let's be racist or whatever um is uh is also itself wouldn't be really countercultural. I mean, it would, it would, it's obviously doesn't gain assent from um, kind of mainstream institutions in kind of most like rich world countries, but it, uh, it certainly, it, it, it also, it would it ends up becoming its own kind of, I guess its own sort of subculture and inscribed again in the same sort of um, internet currents as, as the kind of radical liberals do as well. So um, I, I, I don't see how that ends up being counterculture. Like, you know, I don't think there's a kind of right-wing counterculture. My kind of concluding point, I guess, would be that only a rejection of sort of performativity online, whatever, would any- be in any way sort of countercultural. And I don't think that necessarily has enough of a sort of base to become an actual widely shared counterculture very difficult to transmit it if nothing else well yeah um, we... at this point in time all right so um let's uh let's leave that there um if you have any thoughts on this let, let us know if uh, we've missed something glaring in terms of an emerging uh counterculture somewhere um or if you think that we've been barking up the wrong tree and that there's obviously room for something which would be countercultural today or indeed that maybe countercultural counterculture would be a useful accompaniment to left-wing politics um we've obviously been very skeptical of that notion but uh, do let us know uh, that's it for now catch you later bye-bye